Alright, so so what happened last week here, Jared? I feel like as a history podcast, we have an obligation to talk about this. What happened uh Oh, something in the United happened. States, something important was going on? Yep, a, a politic <laughs> happened. Oh, man. Probably a bunch of, like, overprivileged and uh, <laughs> maybe, like, under-reality-ized people. Uh, they do something mm-hmm. noteworthy this mm-hmm. week? Yeah, well, the the bastion of American democracy, the very hall of freedom for our country was stormed by a vicious mob of hooting barbarian chuds <laughs> yeah and by stormed he means we're let in by the capitol police we're let in by capitol police <laughs> january 6th 2021 and to quote many mainstream news outlets a day that will live in infamy oh yeah well that one guy did sort of look <laughs> like a nordic warrior yeah that's true <laughs> but i think that uh all pretty much all of the takes I'm seeing are just terrible about this right now. A lot of them are really racist because they're kind of like comparing this to, you know, something that would happen in like Africa or, you know, the or a Latin American country, which yeah, is ridiculous. Something that just happens down there. Well, we're the ones who are starting the coups down there. We're not the ones having coups done done on us in well, Latin America. Aren't we? Well, I mean, when it's our economic interest being represented, <laughs> like in Bolivia, you know, sure. <laughs> oh, man, but, I just, uh, I saw some, like, response from Venezuela about it. They uh, we were, like, talking about oh, yeah. a really troubling situation where now America is, like, experiencing the type of political machinations that we usually inflict on other countries. I'm going to see if I can find that so we can read it. <clears throat> But I mean, to call this a coup is like, I I don't even know. <laughs> That's like calling your house cat a lion or something. Well, it's not a coup. A coup is the wrong word for it, for sure. Um, all right, I can't find the quote. But uh, oh, okay. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I was just saying, like, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> a bunch of people with too much free time and money and uh, not enough yeah. grip on reality just went and uh, they had themselves a bit of a day right and that's the thing is that you know the word coup or even insurrection i think indicates a level of organizational capability which just was obviously not there dude it was just some people out having a good time did you see how happy they all looked they were thrilled they were thrilled (laughs) and and so you know let me just lay my cards on the table here okay because when i visited dc I took a picture of myself flipping off the Capitol building. <laughs> I have I have no love for for the hollowed you know bastion of freedom in Washington. Oh man! But I recognized what those people were feeling because I felt the same way when I was marching in Denver with Black Lives Matter protesters after George George Floyd's murder this summer. Well, right? it's interesting that you compare this to Black Lives Matter because they're clearly very compatible, very comparable. <laughs> Well, I'm just, I'm not trying to make a direct comparison here. No, you're Although not, I think but that I've seen plenty of people trying to do that. People, I think that a better comparison is like, you know, the the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in, in Seattle. If you wanted to make a left-wing comparison to what happened in, 
in DC. I mean, maybe, but less successful. But I'm saying that, you know, the, the heart that feeds those passions though, Jared, the thing that makes you like, say, I'm going to go to Washington or travel a long ways for something that I believe in. Like, I think I recognized that in those people. Okay. You know? Sure. And so, but I, I think that when, then we go and say like in popular media, this is, and we use idealistic language to talk about it. Like, you know, these people hate democracy. They're trying to overthrow, you know, our norms of government. Use all <coughs> no, these they're doing that phrases. because they love our democracy. But that's exactly the problem is because those it's not rooted in an actual, uh, we're going to sound like broken records on this show, material analysis of the economic conditions that gave rise to this, this event. And that's the harder, that's the harder thing to do, right? Because you can't just say, oh, they hate freedom. Well, I mean, to do something like that, you'd have to be getting paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and have like a research budget and, uh, you know, journalistic training. Well, actually, we're going to do that today. <laughs> and we're oh, not shit. doing any of those Did things. we get a pay raise? <laughs> nope. <laughs> but as to the topic of is it a coup or not, I'm just going to give the the Webster's Dictionary definition of a pooch. That's spelled P-U-T-S-C-H, <coughs> which is a violent attempt to overthrow a government. Doesn't say anything about whether it was successful or not. Doesn't say anything about what type of government it was, but it was a violent attempt to overthrow a government. And I think that does fit what happened last Wednesday. I mean, I guess this is like, the extra training wheels version of a pooch i would say oh yeah but that's why it's a good opportunity for us on the political left to examine it i think and put it in a historical context yeah it was the greatest pooch (laughs) it was the worst of pooches (laughs) (laughs) dude i did see that thing where trump was just like basically like yeah i agree with you guys but come on you should go home now (laughs) well and i think that that really highlights the problem here which is that with basically barely any like impetus these people showed up and were ready to riot and with if we consider like what could have happened or what will happen when you have like a, a a competent populist leader someone with who actually does have these organizational capabilities, then that's kind of scary, right? That would be the scary thing. Not what happened last Wednesday, but that, you know, this fervor exists within our, our populace. Uh, yeah, it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've titled this, this is hashtag liberal democracy problems, because what happened here is not a feature of like a developing country, or, you know, uh, or, you know, Africa or something like that. Certainly they have their own, you know, problems like juntas and various other types of government instability, but this is a distinctly liberal democracy problem. Yeah. You know, this tends to happen in places where things have been pretty good for quite a while. And, uh, exactly. That starts to not be true and people, uh, they don't handle it well. Well, and Basically, this this often shakes out in 
in similar circumstances. So we'll just talk about how we got here in America. And then we'll go on to look at another famous pooch. And we'll talk about the similarities and differences. Because there are a lot of differences too. But one of the things that, of course, our role model, idol, and um, you know, father figure, Dan Carlin, often says is that history doesn't always repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think that's that's what we're going to see in this analysis. So you've got some liberal democracy problems because you've got basically two groups of wealthy people who run a country. You've got the ultra-rich in the cities and the coastal areas. <laughs> and then you've got the only kind of rich in the rural and interior areas of the country. Yeah, the strivers we were talking about. Right. You've got at the ultra-rich, these are like the Bezoses. These are the Epstein alumni, you know. And, <laughs> you know, they, they might hold some, like, uh, ostensibly... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> the Mangala machinery. Uh... The Mangala machinery, yeah. <clears throat> they might hold some ostensibly progressive views on social issues but they basically have shitloads of cash and they tend to live in these cities and coastal areas whereas the only kind of rich in the rural and interior areas these are people with boat owners the really well-off ones might have a second home um they're small businessmen the marxists would call them the petite bourgeois i call them a pain in the ass pain in the ass your boss is one. Yeah. In fact, know. pretty much, I can guarantee everyone listening, I can pretty much guarantee your boss is one. Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, shit, you know, there's nobody that talks more about hard work than somebody that inherited a fi- uh, company from his dad. <laughs> or like a landed estate in, <laughs> in Mexico, for sure. Um, But so what happens with the ultra-rich and the only kind of rich? They both exploit the poor and the working class to maintain their wealth. And, of course, that's easy because those people don't vote or can't usually. (laughs) Ideally, from the point of view of the other people. Ideally, for the people who run the country, yes. And then they divide the middle class and thus political rulership around social issues and identity politics. So that could be abortion. It could be like religion. It could be guns. Um, can you come up with any? Could you come up with any issue that uh, the U.S. might have? Um, does your coffee also kill Muslims? I think that's a popular one. Ooh, um, certainly not. <laughs> <clears throat> um, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you start out with a pretty good list there. <laughs> um, yeah, what well, is with it's, all like it's the, easy. What is, like, the connection between coffee and guns that seems to be, (laughs) like, a thing now? Well, it's it's just the the type of... It's basically because marketing has subsumed this cultural divide. And you can just get people to buy your shit if you say it's Black Rifle Patriot Coffee. Even though that's dumb and it's shitty coffee, people are just going to be like, yeah, I like veterans and whatever, (laughs) and exploiting the labor of the poor, so I'm going to buy that coffee i guess it is shitty coffee it is i've tried it. it's it's not not any <laughs> my good. aunt got me like a mug and like a pound of their coffee last christmas and she was like don't you love this and i was like no i kind of like specifically hate this yeah <laughs> well and again that's that's just it it 
lets people sort themselves out easily in around social issues and basically means that you never have to say why do only the rich people get to make the decisions and then they're like no 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 you got to decide on gay marriage remember yeah and i'm like did i did i get to decide on that i don't think i decided on that plus you can vote with your dollars for violent coffee right there you go and that's freedom that's a free society it feels <laughs> it feels really free <laughs> I was just thinking earlier today about how free I felt. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I guess free. I did because it's the only day I got off this week. But, you know. Yeah. You get that. You get that sweet, sweet, sweet little, little like hit of freedom just to get you by until the next one. Yeah. I know, man. I'm already dreading. What do they call it? Like the fucking Sunday scaries or whatever. Yeah. I'm already dreading having to wake up tomorrow. Yeah. Well. I, I'm not there with you, man. I'm too unemployed. <laughs> having a job. <laughs> having a job is a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I just, I work on this shit all the time. That's the thing is I just like work at weird hours whenever <clears throat> I want to. And I'll just put it down for f- like five days, which is kind of the way work should be, I guess, you know, like, probably. <laughs> I wish, man. Yeah. If I could put it down for five days, I'd be, well, not sitting here right now. Yeah. It'd be lit out for the territories. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, but all right. So, what happens in these little liberal democracies with their kind of rich and their ultra rich people? <laughs> well, eventually, the old economy she goes bad, as as what happened in two thousand eight in <clears throat> the America. I mean, not even eventually. Usually, it happens pretty quick. Right. It just it occurs cyclically, right? Which is why this kind of shit happens over and over again in the United States. Um. And when the economy goes bad, it creates the conditions for populism. Populism is a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel their concerns are ignored by the established elites. Who are some populists from history? Um, Let's see. William Jennings Bryan. Sure. Jim Jones. Jim Jones, sure. Um, Roman history, and we're thinking like uh, the Gracchi, the Gracchi. Yeah, they were populists. Uh, Caesar, to an extent, was kind of a populist. Oh yeah, he used a populist message. It's going to make yeah. Rome great again. Mm-hmm. Except for he yeah, actually did. The... Well, and and that's the thing is, you can have a left wing populist message or a right wing populist <clears throat> message. Mm-hmm. And in two thousand eight. Barack Obama ran on a left-wing populist message. But critically, it was one that did not challenge the power of those coastal, urban, ultra-rich elites. Instead, Obama mainly challenged the only kind of rich through things like health care, taxes, environmental regulations. Those are the kind of things that only are a threat to you if you, ha- if you have just a medium or small nut, not if you have a bezos nut and of course as we know obama didn't change anything for the poor the working or the middle classes leading to disillusionment and uh, you know what what i heard this uh the woman the air force veteran who was killed during this capitol hill uh pooch that she had she was a former obama supporter who had then 
being disillusioned, flipped to the right. And so, yeah, Trump ran on a right-wing populist message in 2016. Although, interestingly, Obama, even after his first four years of failing at populism, he still kind of ran on a populist message in 2012, if you remember. Yeah, well, he knew people weren't really paying attention that much. And he was up against Mitt Romney, who's basically like Mr. Neoliberalism. Yeah, it's not that hard to be to the left of Mitt Romney. No. But yeah, so, again... Trump's populist message doesn't really challenge the coastal elite. Man, people are acting like Mitt Romney is like the sensible Republican now. Uh, <laughs> have people forgotten how nuts that guy is? <laughs> Corporations are people, my friend. Dude. Uh, I'm like, I don't think he's a people. I think he's like a, he's, he's like, a, oh uh, yeah. He's like an he's animated corporation. He is. Yeah. So, again, Trump's populist message doesn't challenge the ultra-rich. And, again, Trump's kind of from their stock, <laughs> or at least Jeff he sells Bezos. himself. Right. I mean, he, and again, that's kind of it. He he picks out a few enemies, like Bloomberg and Bezos, right? <laughs> he's got, like, right? personal squabbles with some of these guys individually, but he's not criticizing their existence. Exactly. So he can <clears throat> kind of seem like he has some populist credential without actually threatening the ultra-rich. And, um, of course, Trump was, is an Epstein alumni, right? Like he's on the flight logs. Totally. I feel like Trump too, kind of could cash in a little bit on that Obama disillusionment. Like exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't have, you don't have to be a racist to dislike Barack, Barack Obama. I think that he cashed in on it this year as well in his 70 million votes that he got. So, but also interestingly, <laughs> unlike <Obama>. with Obama, <laughs> yeah, unlike <laughs> with Obama, the only kind of rich in the rural and interior areas of the country love Donald Trump because <laughs> that's who he is. Cause he, Fucking yeah, they do. Cause he represents through, I mean, he acts like them on the apprentice, right? He gets to be the petty tyrant. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of these people are very petty tyrants. Mm hmm. And of course, Trump didn't threaten the wealth of either of these groups. And in fact, his tax cuts in 2017 shored up the wealth of all the landed gentry in America. But how was Trump able to appeal to the poor and working class for that small segment of the vote that he got? <laughs> Basically by being a vulgar comedian. Right. Yeah. Um, well, unlike with Obama who had built his populist message, around actually delivering things Trump's right? just that fun. we would get you shit trump's just ron white with more money right <laughs> trump's populist message is one of like vulgar commonality and critically it's built on conspiracy theories as well we think back to like the birther gate to QAnon today but all of these are about national decline and they appeal to a strength of like law and order mentality which means that for, you know, poor and working class people who are related to, you know, uh, the military industrial complex or the police, they have um, good reason to like Trump because of his populist appeal to law and order. And because it's kind of rooted in conspiracy theories, he never even has to actually show like uh, evidential progress on things. No, Trump's like the president that's had it the easiest 
out of any of them. He just didn't have to do anything. Right. Yeah. He just he just eats cheeseburgers, watches Fox News, and then does a stand-up routine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, if, if the economy hadn't gone really bad in 2020, as often happens, he probably would have won that re-election. Uh, again, doing nothing. I mean, right? it was pretty close still. But he didn't, this is the thing, is he didn't threaten the wealth of either group, the <clears throat> ultra-rich or the only kind of rich, until we have coronavirus occur. I mean, and it's so, not like yeah. Joe Biden is threatening that stuff either. No, but he poses more of a, well, we'll we'll talk about um, how, how things have gone this last year. So basically, <laughs> basically you know, the we markets this... <laughs> just demand stability and Trump is not yeah. that. Stability. Um, So there's an external crisis. It's coronavirus. And the economy goes really, really bad. Now, now we have a split between the ultra-rich in the urban areas and the only kind of rich in the interior. Wait, the economy is bad. Oh, had you not heard about that? Oh, no. uh, It seems like the stock market is doing pretty well. Oh, maybe maybe I'm acting on bad information given, you know, my daily lived experience. Oh, okay. well, uh, uh, that's yeah, you're right. It's not it's not that's just like anecdotal anecdotal evidence, right? And if the line is going up, yeah. I think I think we got to call this episode off. <laughs> I think you better open a textbook cuz you're talking like an idiot. <laughs> well, let me see if this makes sense to to you or anyone listening. So, with coronavirus, the ultra-rich in the coastal and urban areas wanted to shore up their interests with Keynesian spending and social controls. Specifically, that's stimulus spending and a lockdown. That's the social control. However, that hurts the only kind of rich. Their businesses are primarily hurt by lockdowns. And their concern is that stimulus spending will lead to inflation. And with inflation, the only kind of rich risk becoming middle class. God forbid. I mean, that's what they say. I think a lot of it also is they know if people get $2,000, they're going to have a little less incentive to go get these awful jobs that don't pay anything and expose them to coronavirus. Right. But... People getting $2,000 stimulus checks would be great for the ultra-rich because it would be going to Netflix and Amazon and Apple and all that kind of shit, right? Yeah, okay. So (laughs) I've got a a tale of two stimulus checks um, from Mm -hmm. two different people I know. Um, One of them is a friend of mine that is like unemployed and trying to work like cash under the table jobs just to make ends meet. Um, he got his stimulus check, and it was gone instantly to bills, <clears throat> and he still doesn't have all of his bills paid. And uh, I know another person who got his stimulus check and then immediately went and bought a new six hundred dollar nineteen eleven firearm. <clears throat> yeah, that that's um, one of our new listeners, Gun Lad. Hey there, Gun Lad. Um, he probably, I think he did the same thing. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And or yeah. there's like somebody like me where. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's I nice, mean, but, I didn't, bills, yeah. but I didn't super need it. So it just right. kind of is like in my bank account. I'm going to spend some of it on bass lessons. 
it would be funny if you were like, what I really need though is fiber for my compost pile. So I'm going to withdraw six hundred one dollar bills. <laughs> Just toss shred it right them, on there. <laughs> toss it on the compost pile. <laughs> Maximizing the utility of those pieces of paper. Yeah, you're like you're like Fry getting three hundred cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> It's a classic, classic <laughs> episode. <clears throat> All right. So basically, though, you know, the only kind of rich, they're not really wrong about this situation um, because the real economy, not the, you know, fanciful line that we all know and love, but the real economy is neither fully stimulated by something like a UBI, nor is it able to function <clears throat> normally due to the uneven lockdown and the nature of COVID-19. So you have to exist in this liminal state where no one is happy. Except for the ultra-rich because they've already got shitloads of money. Because they're always happy. They're always happy, yeah. Actually, I don't know. You see them on TV, they're always kind of angry, it seems like. <laughs> they're so defensive. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what they have to defend. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure they earned it with their own hard work. <laughs> so we get a break in the recent trends of political campaigns in America where Biden does not run on a populist message in 2020. In fact, he's explicitly anti-populist. If he promises to basically return things to the way they were in 2015, the conditions immediately preceding Donald Trump, which I'm sure had nothing to do with, you know, generating Donald Trump. This is Obama to Joe Biden back in black. So, yeah, I, Biden won. Biden is just, <laughs> he's like, he's like Ralph Wiggum or whatever. <laughs> he's just like, I am an NAACP. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Biden won at the behest of the ultra rich. And because the middle working class voters were basically resentful of Donald Trump. Yeah. And, you know. Count me in, right? Also, he I told do Trump. Also, he told uh, health insurance companies that they can still exist. So, well, again, yeah, that's it. That's it. He got some of those people into his camp, even from the kind of rich, because of some of that type of assurance. His anti-populism, and that was the Democratic Democrats' goal in the election was to win over the only kind of rich by running against populists. So, in spite of the election, the material anxiety of the only kind of rich remains. That's the approach that led to Trump winning the first time. Right. You haven't done anything to change the function of the system. You haven't reduced the precarity of these people who feel um, at risk. And because Donald Trump's populism is built on conspiracy theories, he still holds support among poor and working classes who will ignore evidence to the contrary, law and order types in particular. And it was an association of those two groups of people, the only kind of rich and the, I think Matt Crispin called them sons of the, of the earth, the, you know, like the, the, the working, the working people, the, the reactionary what proletariat what what help me out here jared uh i just like your average hvac employee right yeah the <clears throat> the people with big trucks you know yeah yeah 
The, Doesn't necessarily mean they're like the, super well off. The real Americans. <laughs> yeah. What do you yeah, mean super well off? Fuck yeah, they are, dude. They can get enough credit. Well, how many? They can get enough credit for an F three fifty. They can get a Razor, yeah. man. They got a house. They live in the suburbs. They live in an apartment yeah. in the suburbs, and they own an F three fifty. They got a house. They got some kids they don't pay attention to. They got a life that doesn't. A wife that doesn't like them anymore. I mean, yeah, they got it made. And they might be a working class stiff. But they might also believe that, you know, Trump is dismantling the pedophile conspiracy. Yeah. Right? And they don't have the education or wherewithal to, you know, to counter that in any significant way. They just know that they watched him every week on TV for eight years. And he has occupied in their sub in their subconscious an idol-like state of a, yeah. of a populist figure. <laughs> Trump's not a leader, but he played one on TV for a while. There you go, yeah. And so, yeah, that brings us to the pooch, the violent attempt to overthrow the government as they were ratifying the electoral votes in Congress for the 2020 election. So how did this happen? Was it just like a spontaneous outburst of emotion? Hundreds stormed the Capitol on January 6th uh, in protest of democratic reform. You know, conservative reaction, right? Well, it'd be really embarrassing for the FBI if that wasn't true. <laughs> well, the way the way that this—I mean, as, assuming that any, <laughs> assuming that anyone, like anyone, is interested in holding the FBI accountable for anything, I, I again, I why <laughs> why would you like Co, Co Intel Pro? They're probably listening to us right now. I mean, <laughs> uh, we're not big enough for that yet. But one day. Right. I Maybe. aspire to be spied on. Yeah, that I'm going to go out like yeah. Hemingway. <laughs> All right, so how did this happen? It's the threat, the real threat to the material wealth of millions of Americans. The kind of rich resulted in this militant <laughs> the energy only people in people with any wealth. And so they answered Trump's call, feeble though it was, right? Very feeble. Like, he again, he didn't really try. He didn't really try to organize this. There was Dude. no... I mean, there were some people within his websites and, you know... You know what I've been learning lately? Like, it is so much easier to start a cult of personality these days than it used to be. Yeah, it's easier to start a cult of personality. Like, you don't even have to be good it's at harder it to. Yeah, but it's harder to actually, like, build, um, you know, an act... Um, a material movement, I guess, because people are cynical, right? I mean, maybe Trump like barely tried, and he still got these people to show up. Can you imagine if he actually believed anything? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> exactly. So the individual motivations for the people who were <laughs> like, can you imagine at this thing? Can you imagine if fucking like Donald Trump respected Pence? <laughs> how awful that would be <laughs> oh man but yeah so um the individual motivations of the people who were at this pooch were various it could be police it could be you know back the blue stuff it could be the pandemic guns religion conspiracy theories and honestly it doesn't matter um because none of that really explains the you know the the movement of like people and material around this political goal 
which you have to, you know, frame within class anxiety because part of being a materialist is that you view history as the history of class conflict. And what we saw here was a case of the rebellion, the rebellion of the only kind of rich and their working class thralls who have been, you know, suckered in for whatever reason against the ultra rich who have been basically running the country and reaffirmed their power with the election of Joe Biden. So you storm the Capitol. So Trump did unleash this militant populism, but the feckless response of politicians in the media so far has done little to address its cause, which is the class anxiety and contradictions of the capitalist system here in America. But the worst take is that this represents the last gasp of fascism or Trumpism on, on our soil. Well, as history has shown, this type of thing is always uh, one and done and it doesn't ever build to anything. <laughs> yeah. So the pooch occurred on January 6th. <laughs> Fascists are always very successful in the beginning yeah, and then they give up easily. easily. Deterred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By January 7th, the next day, the Washington post said that this spell, that Trump's spell seems to be broken. And I saw on the Hill on Wednesday that, that was the day Trumpism um, died. And actually, right after another historic pooched, pooch, the Beer Hall pooch in Weimar, Germany, the New York Times declared that the failed pooch was the end of Hitler and his supporters in 1923. So you guys, you should trust the New York Times. <laughs> Paper of, of like Paper always of accurate takes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Excellent reporting always. Right, so let's talk about what happened in Bavaria in 1923 and draw some parallels between uh, those events and what just happened in the U.S. And we'll talk about what, you know, led to those events just like we did for America as well. So Bavaria, you know, Germany, Bavaria is part of Germany. It's It's in the southern part of Germany. It's got, its main city is Munich. And it's the historic place of House uh, Wittelsbach, which was the dynasty that had ruled there basically since St. Anthony's times back in the 1100s. All right. Blue and uh, white. If you've heard of, yeah, blue and white. If you've heard of King Ludwig the Mad, that was, that was Bavaria. Um, he built Neuschwanstein, the Disney castle that, you know, is on the Disney logo and stuff. All right. That's where we're at. Magical Southern Germany. I was going to say, it sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, foothills of the Alps, forests, beer, lots of beer halls. I was going to say, the one thing most Americans know about Bavaria is those motherfuckers love beer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and those those beer makers... They're like the France of beer. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so, of course, Germany went through a not great time in the early part of the 20th century called World War I. And by the end of World War I, Germany was basically run by its beautiful generals. People like Erich von Ludendorff. Uh, 
these guys were basically running a war economy in in Germany, which led to them essentially fighting the Allies to a standstill, and for a long time until close to the end of the war. But economic stagnation and starvation at home, like the turn up winter of 1918, and it's actually, you know. Socialism is a big, big part of this story. It comes in really early because before World War I, the socialists were actually very popular in Germany. In the Reichstag election of 1912, socialists won one-third of the seats of parliament in the German Empire. One-third. They were the largest political party. They weren't able to take power because of a conservative coalition against them. But if you think about the fact that like Marx was German, um, that you have a you know w- huge working class in this industrializing you know state of uh, of Germany, that kind of makes sense that socialism would you know be popular there. And one of the byproducts of having popular socialists is that the capitalists actually kind of have to watch their ass and provide more things for their workers and like give lots of time off and. You know, because they don't want them turning on them and becoming yeah. socialists. <clears throat> you know how the Soviet Union was the first uh, people to put anything in space? Yeah, you re- exactly. <laughs> you really think the United States would have went to the moon if that didn't happen? <laughs> Fuck no. Yeah. You want to know why <laughs> things have gotten so much worse? <laughs> yeah. You want to know why things have gotten so much worse in both America and Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union? It's the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, nobody's... So you don't have socialists there. Nobody's keeping anything on us. I mean, okay, the Soviet Union sucked, but I mean, you know, I don't know if I would even go that far, dude. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll. I'm sure we'll okay. have plenty of time with the Soviet. By the Union. time they were collapsing, <laughs> they they sucked. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah, so unfortunately, World War One split the German socialists, and this is kind of a, a famous example of you know kind of like watch who your friends are i guess and judge them by their actions and not what they say because if you think about germany it's kind of coming from you know this prussian root which is extremely nationalistic and world war one was this huge outburst of german patriotism that was manifest in this war effort even though it was a war of aggression most germans didn't look at that way they saw what the Kaiser saw that they were encircled and needed to break out. Right. Yeah. They were just conquering territory and self-defense. Exactly. Yes. And for a lot of the socialists (laughs) in Germany, they looked at that nationalism as not contradictory to their socialist goals. And right there, then and there, Hey, that's, that's a no go. Sorry. You can't be a nationalist and a socialist. You can try, and we're going to see someone who does, but it's a it's a contradiction. Well, instead of singing the international, you just sing the national. <laughs> People like that band, which is every which is just nationalism, right? It's just <laughs> you. You're just another patriotic asshole. Well, they put the national in international, right? So. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were like, you know, they were going to Africa and stuff. That's international. Workers of the world, you stay where you are. 
<laughs> Give us your goods. Yeah. So national sentiments split the socialists once the war starts. Basically, the socialists, the, the democratic socialists, stay pro-war. And they split off into the independent socialists who are anti-war. However, <clears throat> the independent socialists are still pro-private property. They're not willing to go all the way to saying we're anti-war and anti-property, okay. which would be a huge threat to you know industrial capitalism. Certainly. And so the independent socialists then split off into the communists. And those are like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. You know, that's our squad, right? Yeah. Things don't go well for them. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, the communists are actual communists. They're anti-war and they're anti-property. Private property. Anti-private property. Not personal property. Uh, thank you very good distinction and so um of course the russian revolution pops off in 1917 and by november you have you know the soviet union forming in russia of 1917 yes and and of course what do they do they end world war one for russia they get them out of the war right and in fact, that was what really distinguished them from the socialists, because the socialists were kind of like, well, we got obligations to France and Britain. Maybe we got to keep fighting this war, guys. Yeah, and the communists, the communists were, were like, fuck, fuck those guys. that shit, dude. My whole family's fuck dead. That shit. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and so the same uh, sentiments. <laughs> I can't eat warheads. Yes. <laughs> the same sentiments were emerging in particularly industrial areas like around Munich and Bavaria at the end of world war one in Germany. And this actually kind of helped bring the war to a close for Germany is because they were basically having revolutions popping off within, within the, the Kaiser Reich. And Munich was a center of working class populism. And only one year after the Russian revolution on the 7th of November, 1918, this guy named Kurt Eisner declares the people's state of Bavaria. God. Basically, he's not related to the guy that was like the CEO of Disney for a while, is he? You know, I don't know. Um, but Kurt Eisner was a middle class Jew from Berlin. Oh, my God. And he was kind of he's totally well, he was Michael kind of Eisner's grandpa or something. <laughs> Maybe. Um, he was kind of a hippie. He had like a wife and family in Berlin where he was a theater critic. But then he abandoned his wife and family and moved to Munich where he could also be a theater critic, but he could hang out with a younger mistress and just like hang around in coffee shops all day. So this guy, (laughs) (laughs) but this guy declares the people's state of Bavaria one year after the Russian revolution and basically becomes a breakaway state from, from the Kaiserreich, which is falling apart. This is only four days before the armistice is called on the, the November 11th in 2018 or 1918. So Eisner, he was an independent socialist. So remember he was anti-war, but he still wanted to protect property rights. And what do you know? He was unable to provide basic services through his government after taking power. I mean, that does sound like a hippie. <laughs> well if you're going to try and protect property rights and you're just coming out of world war one there's just not a lot of property i mean yeah you gotta you gotta redistribute i think i mean i mean i don't 
No, just that's totally a hippie. We're anti-war. <laughs> we're for private property. And yeah, that is a very gonna, hippie thing to do. We're going to do a bunch of wacky shit, and then we're going to turn 40, and we're going <laughs> to found Apple. Dude, there's even wackier players in this story. Um, <laughs> and and just when the, in the socialists. We're not even to the Nazis yet. Man, this is starting to rhyme a little bit. Yeah. So the, the socialists, after taking power in this uh, little Bavarian revolution... They are unable to provide services, and they basically their ass is handed to them in another election in February of the next year, 1919. And um, Kurt Eisner, their uh, independent socialist leader, he's on his way to get to basically resign, and he gets assassinated. And I'm going to describe the the circumstances of the assassination because it's interesting. The person who assassinates him is a right-winger, a right-wing activist, who was actually trying to join the Thule Society. The Thule Society being the conservative ethno-nationalist organization, which was also becoming big in Munich at this time. And of course, you know, if you've listened to last podcast on the left, Thule Society comes up a lot. Highly recommended. Yes. So, well, not the Thule Society. We're well, not I'm just talking the about their episode about the Thule Society. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, a good one. I mean, if you're going to be more. a fascist, totally get into the Thule Society, because then at least you're like, you know, you're the tallest, uh, tallest short guy on the Nazi chain. Well, dude, so this guy who assassinated Kurt Eisner, he had like just been turned down from the Thule Society because they performed like a lineage analysis and found that he was of Jewish descent on his mother's side. Oh fuck. You're not getting into the Thule society. You're for not that. getting into the Thule society. And again, this guy's like a conservative right winger. He had fought in world war one. He thought that the Jews had like sold out the country and ended the war too soon. Yeah. Well, and then this he is finds like... out that he's a Jew. <laughs> this is like Hispanic proud boys. That's what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, it's like if a proud boy found out their grandmother was a black Panther, right? Yeah. You like have that to would hide be that. The, the equivalent. You couldn't let people know your grandma's Angela Davis nope. when you're trying to storm. Unless the you like murdered and ate your grandma. You could not let them know that. No. All right. So yeah, basically he gets assassinated and the interior minister, who's only a normal social democrat, and remember, social democrats, they're okay with the war, they're okay with property. Private property. He starts to eulogize his former friend, and people are thinking, like, this guy's doing too good of a job eulogizing him. This social democrat was probably behind the murder, and then he gets assassinated too. Even though there's he wasn't behind it at all. He just gets assassinated. Very cool. All right, well, there's... Wait. Way less assassinations going on these days. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, to be fair, that wasn't a successful assassination. He just got shot twice. But oh, needless okay. to say, he wasn't in pa- He stepped down from power, and unrest yeah. and lawlessness followed. Well, if he was only period. shot twice, I mean, that's yeah, tis but a scratch. Well, it's a sign, though, and he was like, "I'm, I'm good. I don't need to. I don't need to run this people's state of Bavaria anymore." So yeah, he steps down, um, and unrest and lawlessness prevails. But on the 7th of March, 1919, this guy named Johannes Hoffman, who's another social Democrat, 
pretty moderate, you know, socialist. He's a teacher. He's anti-imperialist. He patches together a parliamentary coalition government to run the people's state of Bavaria. And he lasts for about a month, actually, doing that with his coalition government. Doing it the hard way, like trying to get compromise with, you know, the the Thule Society, right? Like, that's tough. <laughs> Uh, and so it lasts a little while, but a month later, on the 7th of April, communists and anarchists declare uh, a you know new revolution, and the Soviet Republic of Bavaria oh, is formed. God damn it, those pesky socialists. <laughs> no, no, no. The socialists were the ones being ousted now. Exactly. By the communists, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, those yeah. pesky they socialists. Pesky. Yes. God damn it, get them out of here. So the commies and anarchists were organized, were energized by a recent Hungarian revolution yep. that had started a temporary Soviet <laughs> Republic of Hungary. And now we got a problem. Right. Capital so, can suffer some socialism. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, cap- capital can tolerate a Bernie Sanders for a little while. A little bit. Know, but <laughs> They're not going to be dealing with some anarchists and communists. So. Hell no, hell no. So, um... Yeah, Hoffman, this moderate socialist, flees with his his government to Bamberg. And now we have what is described by history as the regime of coffeehouse anarchists. <laughs> and I'm going to read right you on. some of the some of the main positions of the state for the people's for the Soviet Republic of Bavaria. All right, this is going to rock. Yeah. <laughs> so in the head of, head of state, we have Ernst Toller, who's actually a pretty well-known anarchist playwright and you know having an anarchist as the head of state that that just makes sense that's an obvious decision totally for for military affairs former waiter uh police president a prominent burglar in the burglaring burgling community hell yeah transportation we've got a part-time railroad track maintenance worker and for education we've got a jew all right well this is like the exact opposite of what the trump administration has done <laughs> like he's putting and, he's by the putting, way I, he's putting people in charge like there are people in charge that are like the enemy of their department yes. but from the exact opposite way yeah like, yeah fuck horseshoe theory uh, now i gotta describe i gotta explain why the the jewish person as the secretary of education was controversial well because we're talking because, about germany in the 19 teens and... yeah specifically <laughs> southern germany which is catholic oh most God. of the teachers were nuns most of the teaching that was going on was with nuns and parochial schools so that's why picking a jewish person as secretary of education was controversial um, the coffeehouse anarchists also reformed oh, wait, the arts. People didn't also believe that like Jews controlled like the world in a cabal, and they had like. Well, that conspiracy was already out there. Yeah, and which like, is another reason it was kind <laughs> Jewish of beliefs for like you know heresy and shit. yeah. The, the Elders of Zion was actually published in German in 1919, this very year. Which is, of course, Elders of Zion is this conspiracy theory text. It's almost like a the conspiracy theory ur text mm-hmm. in some way. 
and that basically it's like this totally batshit made up account of some meeting of Jewish elders in Switzerland in 1897 yeah. that basically says just because they got together and talked about some stuff, they're trying to control society. Yeah. So like I'm saying, when, this guy is like the German equivalent of the exact opposite of Betsy DeVos. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> with charter schools yes <laughs> all right so you're gonna like this Jerry. they reformed the arts and they opened the university to everyone for free except those people who wished to study history Fuck which was deemed yeah. Which was deemed hostile to civilization. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. They have listened to Dan Carlin. <laughs> oh yeah. So that lasted six days. Damn, these dudes, <laughs> these guys are funny. They're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> By the 12th of April, um, three hardcore communist Russian immigrants had taken over the Soviet Republic of Bavaria. <laughs> Three, huh? Yeah, basically, the the like the coffeehouse anarchists had their run, and then you know they didn't organize anything, right? And you know, six days in, yeah, these three people who who again were basically acting at the behest of Lenin in Moscow, you know, because they were trying to organize an international revolution. That was the goal. <laughs> They, they took over and basically started running things. They didn't like it. They didn't arrest or like kill the coffeehouse anarchists. They just like basically said, no, just take other jobs. In fact, Ernst Toller, the previous head of the state, he would lead the new red army of Bavaria. And that was one of the first things that the Russian immigrants did is they promptly formed a red army, started organizing and training factory workers they started redistributing property and they arrested the aristocracy and critically the Thule society nationalists. They arrested them, put them under lock and key. Good move. And a day later, uh, troops that were loyal to Hoffman allied with the racist Thule society on the 13th of April in Munich and actually attempted to overthrow the Soviet Republic, but they were put down by the one day old red army. And then Hoffman, again, the socialist, he's able to gather 8,000 troops and he met with the Soviet Republic who had by this time organized 30,000 troops in a matter of weeks to fight at the battle of Dachau and the Bavarian Soviet Republic wins again. They win two of their first confrontations through organization and planning. But obviously, the, the regime of capital, capitalist reaction is not going to let that stand. And Hoffman, again, our dear socialist comrade, made a deal with the paramilitary Freikorps. The Freikorps... <laughs> Jared, you described them... As kind of uh, the German equivalent of the bonus army following World War One. I. I mean, that's how I think about it. They were unemployed veterans. They were people who had military training and yeah. were very attached to the bonds of military communalism. 
Yeah, and also had a fuckload of shell shock. Fuckload of shell shock, and a lot of them had already internalized this lost cause myth that it was the bureaucrats and the bankers and the Jews that had ended the war and denied Germany its greatness. Yeah. And now they see a regime of Jews and socialists and anarchists in Bavaria. Well. Yeah, they were like traumatized and bored and angry and just, you know, shit wasn't working out. It's too bad we don't have any comparable group in America today. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really too bad. Yeah. Um, Or a good thing. Anyway. Um, So, yeah, Hoffman made a deal with the with the Fry Corps. Oh, if only they were nationalist veterans. Only they were just a group of the character Fry from Futurama. (laughs) Yeah, that would be things would be so much different. So they get 20,000 hardened World War I veterans now. And they take Dachau and surround Munich. Oh, hey. Now, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wasn't, like, misinformation in the media in this era, like, extremely common in Germany? Oh, yeah. And there was oh, just, yeah. like, a crazy conspiracy shit being posted in the papers, even? About, like, you know, socialists and... About Jews just, like, all, all kinds stuff. of stuff, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, oh, I think they were also, like, acutely interested in true crime stories as, like, um, the entertainment of Germany at this time. Okay, okay. Which, uh... Yeah. I, don't, I don't think Netflix is uh, <laughs> cashing in on any of that right now. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get we'll look at some of that stuff. Um, oh, sorry, am I getting to no, it no, before no. we get into it again? No. Um, should I just? I can pop it open. Yeah. So this is. I'm going to be quoting from a text here. This is from Hitler Ascent, 1889 to 1939, by Volker Ulrich. Quote. The demise of the currency was accompanied by the decay of fundamental social values. Cynicism was the mood of the day. Sebastian Hoffner described the dramatic events that his generation went through. We had just put the game of great war behind us and the shock at how it ended, as, as well as a very disillusioning political lesson in revolution. And now we were treated to the daily spectacle of all rules of life breaking down, an age and experience being revealed as bankrupt. Again, no parallels. Well, yeah. okay, man. First is tragedy, then is farce, right? Just, uh, like, the things that those people went through compared to, like, sure, yeah. why this is popping up in America right now. Yeah. Jesus Christ, man. Like, Well, it's different. I mean, the opioid oh, epidemic... Oh, no, I just mean, like, dude... The fascists in Germany, at least, like, those motherfuckers earned it. Yeah. Like, they had been through some shit. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, these fuckers out here storming our capital. I mean, what even happened to them? They had to fucking push two for English on the ATM? <laughs> I'm serious, dude. Like, Yeah, yeah. What the fuck? 
<laughs> well, dude. So some of some of the people, some of the the fry they can't get put girlfriends down. because all they care about are fucking guns and being an asshole. <laughs> Boy, that really compares to like watching all the people you liked die one week in World War One. Yeah. So, um, and sure enough, the fry corps that puts down this revolt contains many future Nazi party members like Rudolf Hess. Of course. Yeah. Hurt people, hurt so, people, man. On May 1st, the Fry Corps broke through the Munich defenses with flamethrowers, artillery, armored vehicles, and aircraft. The street fighting with the Red Army of the, of the Soviet Republic of Bavaria led to 600 dead, including th- over 300 civilians, in fighting. Jesus, man, even if you win that, good lord, the trauma. Yeah. Um, the leader of the communist, uh, insurgency Levine, he was condemned to, to death and summarily executed along with between 1000 and 1200 other communists and anarchists caught in the city, summarily tried and executed by the Fry Corps paramilitary units between 1000 and 1200 people executed on the spot. Okay. Let's compare that with what happens when the right wingers try it. Uh, <laughs> and in total over 6,000 years were handed out in jail sentences so Hoffman the socialist who had run away he's restored to power but obviously power has now shifted dramatically to the right in Bavaria oh did the Freikorps win some type of election <clears throat> no, because the Weimar Republic was declared on August 1919, and Germany was once again unified, albeit in a smaller territory than it was before the war. <laughs> More about that later. Right. Yeah, that probably won't lead to any other <laughs> Um Oh, boy. So, Pro- how about that Hitler fella? <laughs> Property rights. Uh, the hot news in the 1920s. <laughs> Hitler has ideas. <laughs> Can't paint for shit and was not a good soldier, but boy, oh boy, did he have ideas when he was in prison. Now, this is interesting because during the Bavarian Soviet Republic, Hitler was actually there. He was there for the whole thing because he was from Bavaria. His military unit from World War One was a Bavarian unit, and he was back in Munich during these events. Yeah, he was a bit of a hippie. He was a bit of a hippie, that's the thing. He was elected liaison for his battalion to the political commissars of the Soviets. Which means that, you know, he was in contact, right? Like, he had to run for that post. He had to offer to be the one to talk to the commies. Oh, yeah. And in fact, remember Eisner, the the independent socialist Jew who was assassinated early on? It seems, although the evidence is not incontrovertible, but it seems that Hitler marched in Eisner's funeral procession and even wore the red armband of a socialist. <laughs> well, he's going to bring those red armbands back into play pretty soon. With a little with a little change of scenery, yes. Um, so, but afterwards, after the revolution falls apart, Hitler rapidly turned to conservative reaction. It was actually appointed the head of the committee to investigate the activities of soldiers during the revolution for his 
his battalion. So he become he becomes a battalion narc on revolutionaries. And that's why he starts going to all of these rabble rouser meetings in beer halls in late 1919, early 1920 to spy on potentially subversive elements in the soldier community. And that's where he starts to pick up more of his ideas about fusing nationalism and socialism. Again, a thing which cannot be done. Well, <laughs> he tried. I mean, I mean, he was he was never going to try to do it. He, you can't do it. It's definitionally impossible. I'm just saying, talking about doing it seems to work. And this was this was Hitler's introduction to public speaking, actually. And again, it's one of those interesting things where you're like, man, like. He probably was excited when they opened up the Arts Academy. He was probably like thinking to himself, like, you know, I'm not sure about these revolutionaries, but if I can take another run at art school, that might be cool. You know? I don't know. I'm not trying to get into his head, but it's clear that he wasn't outright opposed to it. Well, I mean, he he didn't believe in anything. Well, he was still at that stage of forming a political ideology, right? He had just been hearing shit all of his life. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, I think at this time he was born in 1889. So this would have been, it would have been like around getting close to 30, you know, 25, 26. He's at that age where you're just starting to actually solidify a political outlook. Yeah. You know, because you just think whatever your parents tell you up until then. He's like hanging out. He's been to the war, but he kind of like got some bullshit injury and then got to he, he won the iron cross yeah which is like the medal of honor for germany yeah but i mean he got like a non-threatening injury and uh you know then he's just like yeah. drifting around after the war living off of his parents money and well German actually shepherds and so after the war he's again he becomes you know this like um first liaison for his battalion and then uh you know, narc for his battalion, but he stays in the army until 1920. And then yes, he needs to, uh, he, that's when he starts basically his public speaking career. Right. But who's paying for him to live? Like, how's he paying his bills? That's the question. And the answer is a series of wealthy patrons who like his political ideology and see him as a potential leader of a return to German greatness. Oh shit. He's Ben Shapiro. He is Ben Shapiro, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought he he's was, like, just, living off of his parents' money. He's not making money. He's not making money on his speeches. He just has a bunch of wealthy people, like the Wagner family. Yeah, he's not, like, he's great with, at being a speaker. He just... There's some people that like he's what he says there. with money. Yeah. Yeah, he's getting yeah. there. But he's actually... Basically, the Nazis are never very popular with the with the like working class until they're in power. Well, they were, like, never it, that popular anyway. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that that takes us to our immersive history segment. All right, let's pause. Okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> How long have we been going? Only an hour 15, which is not okay. bad. All right, I'm going to pee yeah. and uh, I'll light up a black and mild for a little bit. Sounds good, man. Take your time. All right, all right. Okay. Okay. 
you know, I guess one thing I did want to highlight was that, like, why why was there this, you know, dramatic political turn to the right in Munich? And undoubtedly it was because they had lived through the, you know, attempts and failures of these socialist and communist governments and kind of came to associate them with the type of chaos that the well-to-do didn't want anything to, to do with. And, of course, between 1,000 and 1,200, communists and socialists were just executed at the end of the revolution. <laughs> That's a lot of consent you're manufacturing there. Right. So even people who might have those predilections are going to be much less willing to voice them. <clears throat> yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> if your beliefs might get you killed, you might do a little analyzing those beliefs. Right. And for someone like Hitler... That involved kind of looking at, I think, what attracted him to those ideas, if there was anything that he found attractive. And then, you know, passing them through the prism of German patriotism and national identity. Yeah, he was... And, eth and ethnic identity, critically. He was looking for an easier life. And so, once he gets going, he basically is going to lay out the program right away and keep hammering it for the next 20 years. So, this is... Quoting um, from Ulrich, talking about one of Hitler's first public speeches in August of 1920. The goal of national rebirth meant externally the creation of a greater Germany, and internally the foundation of an ethnic community, Volksgemeinschaft, <laughs> that abolished. It's a fun word. <laughs> it really is. The foundation of an ethnic community that abolished the chasm between the bourgeois and the working class. We must become a people of hard workers, Hitler proclaimed. And to do that, we can't have any classes anymore. No bourgeois, no workers. We need to become a people of brothers who are prepared to make sacrifices for the national cause. There should be no drivel about classes and no preferment of one segment of the people in national questions. People who work with their heads and those who work with their hands need to realize that they belong together and that only together can we get our people back on their feet again. Yeah, now let's, now let's get out there in the second half and <laughs> score more touchdowns than the other team. <laughs> that, Hitler said... Again and again was the path to genuine German socialism in contrast to the class warfare socialism preached by Jewish leaders. Yep. <clears throat> Hold on to your butts, boys, because we're going to go win that Super Bowl and then go to Disneyland. <laughs> right from the start, Hitler wanted to eradicate Weimar democracy. Let's do away with party craft that divides our people, he exclaimed in 1920. On this topic, too, he called upon widespread anti-democratic and anti-parliamentarian sentiments. He never tired of preaching the merits of a relentless battle against the entire parliamentary brood, this whole system. Democracy was, replaced, was to be replaced by a government of power and authority that would ruthlessly clean out the pigsty, drain the swamp. He demanded a dictator who is also a genius. A man of iron who is the embodiment today of the Germanic spirit. Yes, yeah, a guy that's 
capable of perfect telegraphs with uh, <laughs> the leaders around the world. <laughs> well, and what we see right here is Hitler's quick <laughs> grasp of the powers of public speaking. See, what we got here is Hitler's quick grasp of public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just look under the hood here. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the public speaker. He's got a natural talent. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's... Uh, this kid shows a lot of moxie, uh, you know, he's a little mouthy, but he shows some promise. Now, dare I say there's a lesson that we can learn here on the left, okay? Quoting from Mein Kampf, I hate that I said that. <laughs> <clears throat> the receptivity of large masses is very limited. Their capacity to understand things is slight, whereas their forgetfulness is great. Given this, effective propaganda must restrict itself to a handful of points. Which, in which it repeats its slogans as long as it takes for the dumbest member of the audience to get an idea of what they mean. Make Germany great again. Again. Hope. Change. There you go. <clears throat> so, now this was a lie, though, because Hitler was pitching this at the working class, and these people knew that, you know, this was bullshit. But well, did they we look though? at who I mean, was... I'm pretty sure he just told us that these people forget pretty quick. Well, for the the veterans, for the people who believed in the lost cause myth, it was very very emotionally potent for them. I mean, right? plus these dudes were like growing up in the Prussian Empire. Right. But the people who actively supported Hitler were the boat owners they were the only kind of rich people of germany they were the ones who were wow. paying his bills the horse owners yeah and to quote this is quoting the doctor of quote-unquote racial hygiene oh max von gruber damn it i just hate when i my race gets dirty <laughs> you know <laughs> you get a cavity in your race and you're you know that's that's gonna cost quite a bit to work that out so this was a professor at the University of Munich and racial hygiene doctor, Max von Gruber. <laughs> chairman, he was an early of the Nazi chairman of the racial hygiene department. But again, think about who's supporting these guys. It's university professors. That's not poor working class people. Oh, no, that's those universities are full of uh, progressives and uh, communists. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear what they have to say. In upper middle class circles, one looked on with delight as Hitler achieved what we could not. Winning over the circles of the little people and undermining social democracy. From the horse's mouth. <laughs> Alright, so right from the start, Hitler is building a lot of this with conspiracy theories. As we said, you know, the Elders of Zion protocols were published in German in 1919. And that is basically suffused with the lost cause myth. I think we've already talked yeah. about this and covered it pretty well. The lost cause myth, but also like the, the perception that uh, the army was stabbed in the back by the politicians, like by the liberal democracy. Right. And by socialists who were often also Jews like Kurt Eisner and um, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht. Yeah. 
And of course, and yeah, I mean, this is one of the things. Like these are like let's, let's talk sort about of QAnon like the briefly. people that got put in prison by Joe Biden. I mean, you know. Well, yeah, let's talk about QAnon briefly, right? So QAnon is built on the idea that you know the Hollywood elites are full of pedophiles, and sure enough, a lot of them are pedophiles, right? Like, yep, <clears throat> and a lot of them are Jewish, and a lot of them are you know really rich sex perverts. Well, and if we look at the the uh, communist revolution in Russia, a lot of those people were Jews. Was it didn't mean that, you know, Bolshevism had anything to do with Judaism. And in fact, most of them were only ethnically Jewish. Yeah. They weren't practicing. That's why p- part of part of being a communist yeah. is not believing in God. The I cool mean. thing about finding scapegoats is you don't have to worry about like reality. Right. Well, and that's a great example because Hitler was constantly tying the Jews to both international finance capital and communism. And again, there's no overlap there. I know it's like, it's like saying those lazy work, those lazy Mexicans keep stealing our jobs. Also, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, Hitler was really missing a key, like a key market with, he could have been selling all types of like supplements and, uh, <laughs> he could have been selling pillows. Yeah, like <laughs> he could have been selling like prepper buckets of food and stuff. Tactical wipes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> all right. So I'm just saying Hitler's... if, if things ever go wrong enough in the bathroom for me to require a tactical wipe, um, <laughs> you might not hear from me for a while. Right, so um, Hitler starts to build up this popular Dude, you base You know what's hilarious, though? Like, the yeah. people that are buying that, they probably take the type of shits that would require, like, a military-grade butt wipe <laughs> if such a thing existed. <laughs> well, I, I also want to just highlight why why that comparison of, like, talking about an ethnic socialism is just done. Because... The very concept of like nationhood is contrary to you know what your goal is with socialism. You're not trying to build a like ethnic popular community. You're not trying to build a nation. You're trying to tear down national you know divisions. You're trying to build a community with every other member of the human race, regardless of their creed or religion. You're not. You just and so that's why we often hear this phrase. Anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. That's a popular saying. And I'll just quote from one of uh, Hitler's... This is from Rudolf Hess, actually. Hess described what attracted him to Hitler's political program as follows. His fundamental idea is to build a bridge between various classes of the people and to establish socialism on a national basis. That, of course, automatically includes battling against the Jewry. Of course, automatically. Right? How else could you build? How else could you build a bridge between various classes of people except by exterminating the Jews? Again, it's just it's absolute batshit, just batshit nonsense. <laughs> so, and it, and this actually kind of again smacks of what we talked about with like utilitarianism in our economics <clears throat> episode, right? It's like, well, who counts as people? To put this into context, though, I mean, this is also the time when phrenology was real popular. Yeah, yeah. In in universities. <laughs> yes, in America. <laughs> That's like, okay, yeah. this is one of those things where people might think I'm kidding. No, 
Mm-mm. This is a hundred percent true. You could get a degree in phrenology in college at this yeah. time. This bump on your skull means you're prone to criminal behavior. <laughs> this uh, Jew on your soul means that you might try to injure Germany. And it's also important to note that an additional, in addition to conspiracies about you know Judaism, um, a major party plank for the developing you know, Nazis was left-wing suppression. And in fact, they had a song that they would go around singing as they were like countering May Day protesters and other left-wing of movements. They, they would they say, did. we'll beat our way to the top and, and indicating they were just going to yeah. beat up socialists until they won. Jews will not replace us. Yeah. You just walk up and punch them in the face and the cops don't care. Apparently. <clears throat> You can get up. So, yeah. You can get up to all kinds of fun as an off-duty police officer. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Um, so this is all developing over the period of 1921-1922, and this is like the early stage of what they call Weimar democracy in Germany, which was the new parliamentary system after the Kaiser had been deposed at the end of World yeah. War. I. And Germany had been set up for success with uh, massive amounts of debt owed to the allied powers right. in world war one and a huge uh, financial indemnity. Yep. And, and uh, uh, manpower. I mean, just like totally depleted, right? Yeah. And like, the global, the, the global generation. market, uh, just really, really doing well at this time. Mm-hmm. Right. Germany was so, uh, on the fast track to success with their new democracy. Because yes. as John Lennon used to say, all you need is democracy. Oh, but wait. The economy went bad. No, they're capitalism. Ah, but the economy went bad, though. But they're, in 1923. But they're good. <laughs> well, as with America in 2020, it actually was due to an external crisis. Oh, of course. Another scapegoat. The French and Belgians this time. So quoting from Ulrich, the year 1923 started with a bang. On the 11th of January, French and Belgian troops entered the industrial Ruhr Valley region to punish Germany for falling behind in its reparations payments for the First World War. A wave of animosity arose throughout the country. The simmering German nationalism reminded some observers of the mood in August 1914. The politically independent Reich Chancellor, who had led a minority government formed by the parties of the political center since November 1922, called upon the parties of the political center to engage in passive resistance to the occupiers, which led economic life along the Rhineland and the Ruhr Ruhr Valley to come to a standstill. The French and Belgian occupiers responded by imposing harsher sanctions, arresting striking workers, and taking railways and mines into their own hands. This only increased German outrage. Obviously. Yes. So, <laughs> Economic sanctions on people that are already struggling. Yeah, and it's your enemies from the First World War who are now back in your lands, you know? Occupying with a military occupation for your indemnity, yes? Not great. 
And of course, yeah, the economic consequences of that campaign of passive resistance of let's just not do anything about it and act like they're not here. So, (laughs) (laughs) man, so this, (laughs) this passive resistance, sanctions and punishment, (laughs) sanctions and punishment, boy, aren't those effective from furthering your goals? Yeah, and you know what's really great for overcoming them is passive resistance. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good way of countering. Yeah, that's what uh, Martin Luther King always said. <laughs> oh man! So yeah, the economic consequences of that were disastrous because um, the Reich was responsible for covering the costs for wages in the dormant factories and mines. Man, seriously, how bad? is capital at like identifying the correct yeah. move to actually furthering their goals. God damn. Being well, a reactionary yeah. must suck because like every time you try to fix these, any of these problems, like you're just yeah. so incapable of actually fixing them. You just make things worse. Right. So basically the government starts printing money money printer go burr and that starts the devaluation of the reichsmark a period of inflation critically though they were not the world reserve currency right they were not england was right and they were coming out the of people you know, world war one yeah the people they had pissed off right so these sanctions that were be pla- being placed on them by france supposedly but actually by england yeah um yeah <laughs> Yeah, it has, it draws, it's, there's zero parallels between what's going on between the U.S. and Iran economically right now. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good parallel, right? Because no, of I the said way a, those sanctions function. Oh. Well, it, it didn't work before, but it's going to work this time. Oh, okay. Oh, in the sense that, yeah, the sanctions are going to lead to, like, productive political outcomes? Yeah, it's going to work this time. Yeah, well, the sanctions definitely led to productive political outcomes after World War One. Okay, well, I got you on tape saying that now. So uh, yeah. everybody knows that they cannot trust James. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> Okay. So, dude, I'm pretty sure I understand why, like, every 57-year-old racist is just, like, on Facebook and Twitter. Well, they're all, like, deleting their Twitters now because Trump got kicked out. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this is fun, you know? Yeah, Just, yeah. Uh, you know, talking shit with your friends about shit that you believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the same thing as that, basically, right? I love it. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, here, this we're going to put this at record <laughs> record out there. It's going to be preserved forever on the internet. <laughs> well that's always a good thing <laughs> hey i'm quoting volker ulrich here okay i'm just i'm just tying okay, together so the strings on the whiteboard this guy is like german his name is volker so his name is yeah. like peopler peopler ulrich i guess so yeah all right yeah i, I just uh i don't know <laughs> when i hear the name volker i just think of paul volker oh yeah yeah <laughs> But I don't know anything about economics. <laughs> All right. So um, the National Socialists were one of the main profiteers from Germany's economic catastrophe. 
Quote, while other political events are poorly attended due to the enormous entry fees and beer prices, the halls are always full when the National Socialists put on one of their mass meetings. And of course, a lot of these were occurring in beer halls, because that's where the public sphere was in Munich at this time. It was the beer hall. I mean, comedy clubs and uh, music venues have known forever that if you want people to show up, make it free to get in and, you know, maybe buy people their first drink. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And have a, have a, you know, really popular act that's a big draw, you know? Yeah. It's saying things that people want to hear. So there were already rumors before the economic crisis that the national socialists were planning a pooch. And when the economic crisis kicked off in January with the occupation of the Ruhr, um, the Bavarian government was like, we really got to watch those fucking Nazis because they're going to try and pooch us. And they actually try to like rein them in. They try to put a limit on the number of meetings they can have at their party gathering in January of 1923. But the Nazis and Hitler specifically... They ignore the regulation from the state of Bavaria, and they go forward with their plans basically as they had them, and face no consequences for it. And the reasons for that were a couple. Um, the people tasked with uh, disciplining them were in the group. Yes, that's, that's one reason. <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know, but yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was. Well, so the the Nazis had already founded what came to be known as the SA, kind of the the predecessor organization for the SS. These are the brown shirts, the street fighters. And the Reichswehr, basically the Weimar Republic military, actually was looking at paramilitary units like the Freikorps and the SA as a potential manpower reserve in the event of a conflict. So they didn't want to crack down too hardly on the Nazis because they might need these people, right? Yeah, uh, like I have said in an earlier episode, it's always good when entities regulate themselves. Yeah, and and also, even though the Nazis, you know, were occasionally screaming about big capitalism, the powers that be still liked them, though, because they were considered useful allies in the struggle against the socialist left. And so because of that, because of their role in suppressing the left, their potential manpower reserve, and yes, that many conservative reactionaries in government were also in the Nazis, they were allowed to basically continue on unchecked through the first part of 1923. Now, May Day comes along, May 1st. And of course, we know that May Day is a social the actual holiday. May Day, right? Um, and so the socialists that still remained in Munich at this time were planning a big, like May Day parade of leftists, and the Nazis were planning to go and you know beat their way to the top. They were going to go and street fight the leftists, and this is. Almost the first pooch, because Hitler does organize his street fighters, and they actually, like, are surrounded by police and essentially the National Guard 
and they have a square off and Hitler stands down and he actually counts it as like a big embarrassment and the leftist festivities go on as planned. So the government stands up to him in this case. It shows that they're willing to counter with military force violence and Hitler backs down. But again, he's not prosecuted. They basically, you know, tell him, go home, kid. But then, as we move through summer, the economic crisis of Germany worsens, and we hit this thing called hyperinflation. Quoting from Volker Ulrich, We read the news with bated breath, as though the reports were of some astonishing new record. Fourteen days later, we could only laugh about it. It was as if the dollar had gained a tenfold energy from surpassing the million mark. Its value began to increase by increments of hundreds of millions and even billions. By September, the million mark note was practically worthless. The billion became the new standard unit, and by the end of October, it was the trillion. You would take a trillion marks to meet the value of one U.S. dollar by October 1923. That's what I call an economic crisis. Now, to counter this, um, a new parliamentary coalition takes power in Berlin. And this is actually led by the Social Democrats. Again, by German standards at this time, pretty moderate people. But in this hotbed of conservative reaction in Munich, they promptly brand this new you know, centrist coalition Red Berlin, right? It's like calling you know, Joe Biden a you know, communist, right? It's like just obviously bullshit for anyone who understands these things. But if you're a reactionary out there in the rural interior, if you're a Lauren Boebert from Colorado, Joe Biden and the socialist left are trying to destroy this country. <laughs> whereas, you know, they, they have no interest in any in socialism or leftism or anything like that. So that's kind of the situation that you're dealing with there. And, of course, yeah, resentments towards Red Berlin were greater in Bavaria than in other parts of Germany. And resistance toward this governmental change, of course, formed immediately. And that's kind of what brought the beautiful general, Erich Ludendorff, from World War I, together with Hitler. And they kind of formed a little bit of a collaboration in this moment. Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, exactly. Um... Ludendorff looked at Hitler and said, here was someone the people could understand, someone morally elevated who could offer salvation. And basically now Hitler, because he's like this populist, you know, he's the king of Munich. He's got people who are just like writing him letters, asking him to do a pooch. Which I'm sure Donald Trump has people tweeting at him all the time saying, just overthrow the government. Oh, yeah. Come on. <clears throat> you know? I, and this is a, I love this because it really shows the level of passion. This is from a woman who lived in a wealthy area of Munich. She wrote in early November. She had attended every speech Hitler gave in Zirkus Krona for the previous two years and queued for hours to secure a good spot so that she could take in every word, every subtlety of tone, and call out Heil to our honored Fuhrer from close proximity. She wrote in early November, 
Now may the Almighty make your arm as strong as your words are beautiful, so that the day of liberation will be upon us. Such overwhelming declarations of loyalty must have strengthened the Nazi leadership's belief that they had to hurry up and take action. But they're cut off at the pass. And that's kind of one of the weird things about this. <laughs> that sounds like a CPAC speech. It does, yeah. All this <laughs> shit is classic CPAC material, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So, basically, the government of Bavaria, like the state government, also changes hands in this time period, in October, basically. And what comes in is this, basically, more conservative reactionaries. It's like the Mitch McConnells. They're conservative reactionaries, but they're not as far as Hitler, right? Um, <clears throat> specifically, the leader of this conservative triumvirate was named Carr. And they actually kind of had a little bit of a standoff with Berlin of their own as they refused to censor an editorial that was critical of a government minister. A right-wing editorial. And so, basically, you have the government of Berlin, the, st the national government, in a standoff with the state government of Bavaria. And in the state government of Bavaria, right-wing conservatives are in a standoff with Hitler, the ultra-right-wing conservative. Now, it's interesting because everyone on the right agreed that the goal was to get rid of, we of Weimar democracy and establish a national dictatorship. Everyone agreed to that already. But leaders did not see eye to eye on how to achieve this end. Who should become the nation's new leader and when action should be taken? So for the conservative triumvirate in power in Bavaria, their opinion was that the national conservative revolution, the totalitarian revolution that would lead to right-wing dictatorship, that it had to begin in Berlin and then come to, to Munich, right? Then they would take power in support of it or overturn democracy in support of it. Whereas Hitler and the Nazis were saying, no, the conservative totalitarian revolution starts in Munich and then we march to Berlin and overthrow the the Reichstag, right? And so there's this standoff, but whereas the triumvirate, the conservative reactionaries, the Mitch McConnell, they're kind of playing for time, whereas Hitler is pressing for action. And something bad happens in early November for the Nazis, which is that the economic situation starts to improve. If you're running on, you know, a bad economic situation as being the cause for your, you know, celebrity and your call for power, an improving economic situation just undermines your authority, right? That's a good sign that you have the right message. <laughs> so in early November, the right-wing government in Bavaria actually sent a messenger to Berlin to talk to the leaders of the military, the, the Reichswehr in, in Berlin. And in a conversation with the head of the German military, he mentioned the severe pressure being exerted by all radical nationalist groups to get Carr to intervene against Berlin with the goal of creating national dictatorship. 
And again, tellingly, the leader of the German military in Berlin agreed. That was his objective as well. But he made it crystal clear that a legal path would have to be followed. If you're going to overthrow the government and establish a right-wing totalitarian dictatorship, you got to play by the rules. In fact, they went so far as to say they would support a right-wing dictatorship if it has a chance to succeed. And again, you got to see results, you know? So, the economic situation is improving, and basically, Hitler knows he's got to act. So he plans to act on November 11th, which is Armistice Day. This would have been like the five-year anniversary of the end of World War One and the beginning of, you know, the betrayal of German patriotism. All right, so we got a pretty strong signal here with this date. <clears throat> exactly. But situations force Hitler to move his timetable up because... Who's he, who's he vying with? It's these conservative right-wing triumvirate guys. And he finds out that they're having a big meeting at the Burgerbrau Keller, the main beer hall in Munich, on November 8th. And one of the things about overthrowing a government is if you can get all the people in one place, well, that's a, pri- that's a prime opportunity, right? So the three conservative guys in charge we're all going to be at this beer hall the night of november 8th and so that morning hitler starts playing his cards of pooch it quoting from ulrich in this fashion the inner circles of the conspiracy were gradually informed about the pooch having been pushed forward the entire undertaking was hasty and improvised there was no time for intensive preparations which would be one of the main reasons that the pooch failed. And again, the organizational capacity for this already exists and is able to move forward. But the fact is, is that they're calling it at the last minute and pushing up timetables. And so that means that it's pretty hasty and shaky. They're getting sloppy. Right. (laughs) It's like the Bay of Pigs. It is. It actually is a lot like that. Yes. So the night of the meeting at the beer hall, it's at 8.30 p.m. And Hitler shows up with a group of SAs, his paramilitary unit, to the beer hall. And unfortunately, he finds a huge crowd in front of the beer hall and a police cordon, keeping him from entering. Hitler is fretting. He doesn't know what he's going to do. Spontaneously, Hitler went up to the policemen on duty in front of the venue and ordered them to clear the street. Thus it was that in the words of Conrad Haydn, the police cleared the way on Hitler's command for Hitler's pooch. Class solidarity. (laughs) Now it gets very dramatic. So I'm going to try and leave some of this behind and just take you there, Jared. All right. Go on, take me there. Yeah. I know. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Hitler enters the lobby of this big building and someone brings him a glass of beer and he's pacing around, basically psyching himself up. This is like, you know, that scene in eight mile when <laughs> Eminem's in the bathroom like that. That's Hitler in this moment. All right. 
one shot, one opportunity. And he takes this glass of beer, he psychs himself up, and he smashes it on the floor. He whips out a pistol, and he storms into this extremely crowded beer hall with two of his SAs, his armed thugs, leading the, the charge in front of him. He comes up within about 10 feet of the conservative triumvirate who's up there at the stage, and he fires a pistol shot into the ceiling to get everyone's attention. Here's what he says. National revolution is underway. The hall is under the control of 600 heavily armed men. No one is allowed to leave. If things don't immediately quiet down, I will have a machine gun posted on the gallery. The Bavarian government has been deposed. The Reich government has been deposed. A provisional government has been formed. With that, Hitler takes the three conservative triumvirate guys and marches them off into a separate room to isolate them. Their leader, Carr, tells them to just play along, and we'll see what happens. When Hitler gets them into the room, he starts to negotiate, right? He explains that what's done is done, and there's no turning back. And he basically lays out the future of the Bavarian and the Reich government, with himself as leader, of course, and he even offers these conservative ministers positions in his future government. But he follows it up with a threat. He says that he has four more bullets in his gun. One for each of the three conservative leaders and one for himself. And he says, you can arrest me, have me shot, or shoot me yourself. I don't care whether I live or die. And ten minutes passed without him making any progress with these guys. Now... Meanwhile, back in the beer hall where all the public is, outrage is beginning to be manifest at the pooch. Many of the respectable Munich citizens in attendance were shocked by what they were experiencing and called out theater, South America, and Mexico. (laughs) Again, sound like anything else we've been hearing? You made that part up. No, dude, I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. Oh my god. (laughs) Um, Hitler returned to the hall and found that the crowd had turned on him. But he gives a short speech which witnesses describe as an oratorical masterpiece that would have done any actor proud. And he completely completely turns the mood in the room. Saint Hitler, dude. He did it. It's too bad the Nazis weren't Catholics. He would have been a saint. I like the way they describe this. It was like a glove being turned inside out. I like, I don't know. I like that turn of phrase there. (laughs) And better yet, just at this moment, hero of the First World War, our beautiful general, Eric Ludendorff, shows up. And everyone's excited because they see their beautiful general there. And Hitler brings Ludendorff in to try and help get these conservative guys down with the pooch, right? Um, With Ludendorff's help, he's able to at least get the three conservative triumvirate guys to agree to uh, work with the pooch. And he comes back out and Hitler addresses the crowd. In the coming weeks and months, I intend to fulfill the promise I made myself five years ago. The day that I lay as a blind cripple in an army hospital. 
never to rest and relax until the criminals of November of 1918 are brought to the ground, until a Germany of power and greatness, of freedom and majesty, has been resurrected on the ruins of the Germany and its pathetic present-day state. Amen. Amen. And most of the people who were there witnessing that shared the sentiment that they were looking at a historic moment. Everyone was excited. They thought this is the beginning, the dawn of a new era. That definitely never had happened before. Yeah, I mean, it was a little different for sure. I mean, you're, you're coming from a Soviet Republic five years earlier. And now you've got this guy who's basically well, in a kingdom like, like 15 years before that. Yes, yes. Just the, the rate of change is insane here, you know. And, and yeah, people are like, well, shit, let's try it. We haven't tried. We tried all that other shit. It's not working. Let's try it. Right. So this is where just after the meeting is over, Hitler makes his first big mistake of the pooch. He hears that there's some trouble going on with securing one of the barracks with the SA. So he goes to check it out, but he leaves the conservative triumvirate with Eric Ludendorff. General Ludendorff, the beautiful general. When Hitler returned, he discovered to his horror that the general had allowed the triumvirate to leave the beer hall with only a promise that they would stick to the agreement they had made. When Hitler expressed his skepticism, Ludendorff responded sharply that he would not tolerate any doubts being cast on a German officer's word of honor. Oh my God. The pooch had made no further plans about occupying things like key institutions. The fuck, Hitler? You don't respect the military? (laughs) They had no plans of occupying, um, like, army barracks, transport and communication centers, and newspaper offices. And that improvised activism would come back to haunt them. So, as soon as they get away from Ludendorff, this conservative triumvirate basically renounces all of their promises to Hitler. They said they were coerced, so they don't count. Obviously. You can't get if you're pointing a gun at someone, <laughs> they'll tell you anything, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. That's why torture works so well. <laughs> yeah. Well that's why it doesn't work, right? It's because they'll just tell you whatever you want to hear if you're if you're torturing. Yeah, that's why torture yeah. works. And you should do that if And gets no results. Yeah, you should do that no if results, you're the yeah most peaceful democracy in the world's history. So at two 50 in the morning, a public announcement goes out on the radio. Um, the conservative triumvirate res- uh, reject the Hitler pooch statements were forced to make at gunpoint at the meeting in the burger brow Keller are invalid. People should beware of the misuse being made of their names. Local authorities and border police were instructed to arrest the leaders of the coup d'etat should they try to flee. Man, there's an alternative history, or like a, what do they call it, like counterfactual or whatever? Like, uh, what the hell would have happened if Ludendorff didn't let those guys leave that day? Right, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, And so Carr, Carr says... Basically, as soon as he's out, there's no negotiating with rebels. 
The assurances forced from us with a pistol are null and void. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that the jackbooted thugs. I mean, the triumvirate, though, these guys are cowards, right? Like, if they wouldn't yeah. have gotten out of that room. Well, it's like if they Mitch McConnell were in there, right? Yeah. Mitch McConnell, would, and they would have just kept going with it if, you know, they had never been, like, let out of that room, right? Yeah. Just like Mitch McConnell would. He doesn't actually believe in anything. Yeah, now the Senate is in the control of Joe Manchin, and he he believes. <laughs> oh, he in believes stuff. in things now. Yeah, yeah, sure. <clears throat> so these events mean nothing to the stormtroopers, the literal jackbooted thugs who think that they've just got they've just won. And so, kind of the first night of broken glass commences in the streets of Munich. Jewish citizens are terrorized, arrested, rounded up, along with prominent leftists, labor organizers, and anyone who's an enemy of the Nazis, basically. The the stormtroopers, the SA, think they have carte blanche to go and enact their terror. And they're kind of right. And, yeah. And in quoting from Ulrich, indeed, only the rapid collapse of the pooch prevented much worse abuses. In the pocket of a Nazi lawyer who worked for the Bavarian Supreme Court, Baron Theodore von der Foderten, who was shot dead the next day, contained a draft constitution in the pocket, which was to take effect after the successful pooch. It decreed that all risks to security and useless consumers of food be brought to collection camps immediately. Those who tried to resist being transported were to be sentenced to death together with members of the Jewish people. Holy shit. They were, again, that was the plan from day one. But by the early hours of the morning, the Reichswehr and the police were preparing to respond to the coup. And by basically noon the next day, Hitler, Ludendorff, and the leaders of the Nazis were kind of like cornered rats. And Hitler was out of ideas. He just basically had played all of his cards by this point, had no idea what to do. And so actually the decisive decision came to Ludendorff, who said, we're going to march. We're going to go out there. We're going to do what Germans do. We're just going to march and we're going to march like hell, guys. We're going to really show them with our marching. The enthusiasm was unprecedented, Hitler later said. And I couldn't help but remark to myself during the march that the people were behind us. But, of course, they had hardly failed. They failed to notice that many of the posters they had put up were already being torn down or papered over by the old government's propaganda. But still, they sang, O Deutschland, Hoch in Ehren, O Germany, High in Honor, and marched towards the center square of Munich. Quoting from Ulrich. Shortly before the march reached the Odeonsplatz near the Feldernhalle, a melee broke out between the demonstrators and the police. Basically, the police and the National Guard once again organized against him. So a scuffle breaks out between the National Guard and the police and the demonstrators, and then came a gunshot. No one has ever determined who fired it, but the two sides exchanged heavy fire for 30 seconds. In the end, 14 members of the pooch and four policemen lay dead on the cobblestones. 
Now, um, Hitler was right at the front of all this, and the person next to him gets shot. Hitler's pulled down to the ground. He gets his shoulder dislocated, but otherwise he's not hurt. And he's actually basically ushered away from the scene to a private car and is taken to like a summer home promptly where he later later turns himself in. Or rather, he's later found and is, turns himself in. And Ludendorff basically keeps marching right through the gunfire, marches past the police lines, and then just like calmly turns himself over for arrest. You know, which is, I guess, what you want out of the beautiful general. I mean, that's pretty badass. Yeah. And, you know, that was it for the pooch. They got arrested. Um, the aftermath for Munich, basically by mid-November 1923, and weeks after this happened, the worst of Germany's financial crisis was over. The currency reform by the new centrist government had throttled hyperinflation, and the economy had begun to recover. Weimar democracy had survived, and a period of stabilization commenced, signaling the end of the immediate post-war era. And of course, if we think about Germany throughout the late 1920s, it was actually a really cool place to be. Yeah. Like, if you think about like cabaret and, um, you know, the shows, the, the culture that was going on in this area. It was oh, actually, yeah. Weimar Germany was very cool for a bohemian. All that culture that the Nazis extinguished was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah, fuck. All right, so what happened to the pooch guys? Remember when they overthrew the Bavarian Soviet Republic, they killed like 1,200 anarchists and communists. And we've already shot 14 Nazis. No one's put to death, okay? Hitler is not put to death. Interestingly, the German government could have used this as an opportunity to, um, what's the term where you throw someone out of a country? Exile? He, they could have exiled Hitler back to his native Austria. And one of the things a lot of people don't know about Hitler is that he was actually Austrian. He was from the other side of the border, but near Germany. But he was just, like, obsessed with German culture, and that's why he crossed the border to join the Germans to fight in the yeah, war. Gavin McInnes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so... <laughs> They could have just thrown him out. They could have sent him back to Austria after trying to overthrow a government. But, in fact, the court's verdict praised the defendants as having acted in a purely patriotic spirit led by the most noble, selfless will. The court also ruled that Hitler, who is so German in his thinking and feeling, was exempt from possible deportation to Austria under the law for the defense of the republic. There was no mention of the four police officers who say, were killed during Good the Lord, was the writer of that opinion's last name Trump? <laughs> um, the verdict was a travesty of justice, and as such, it foreshadowed what would happen to Germany's judicial system in the Third Reich. Hitler knew he had reason to be grateful to the judge, Neihardt, and in September 1933, after seizing power, he named the judge president of the Bavarian Supreme Court in Munich. All right, just a real feel-good story. Hitler got sentenced to um, five years imprisonment, but their sentences could be suspended for good behavior after only six months. Yeah, but that judge's uh, 
little path there. It shows that, you know, karma is a real thing. So Hitler would look back on this as his second greatest failure in his life. The number one failure, not getting into art school in Vienna. This was number two. But the most important lesson that he learned from the failed enterprise of the 8th and 9th November, 1923, was that he was going to have to take another path if he wanted to come to power. Instead of a pooch, he needed to ensure at least the pretense of legality this is like st- in cooperation with the army. This is like Steve Bannon. His career in the arts didn't work out, so he's like, you know what, fuck it, I might as well just become a fascist. <laughs> So, and it was well imprisoned in Landsberg prison that Hitler recollected in February, he became convinced that violence would not work since the state is too established and has all of the weapons in its possession. I mean, yeah. Accurate take. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Hitler didn't even serve a full year. He was in there for a little bit. While he was in prison, he wrote Mein Kampf, basically used it as an opportunity to crystallize his ideology of course he had a very cushy time in prison it's like he had privation people came to visit him his wealthy donors brought him like baskets of goodies and continued to support him through and after his time there and even though he was ostensibly denied from access to all of his supporters and denied some of the you know um, means of propaganda which he had prior to he quickly took them over again now the nazis weren't really that popular in Germany, even though Hitler was out of jail for the rest of the 1920s. But another economic crisis happened in the 1930s, which we all know about. And the Nazis once again exploited an economic crisis and were able to come to power. And I think we all know what happened after that. Peace and harmony the world over. (laughs) Well... A unified Europe behind Germany, right? (laughs) right. Be right back. Yes. (laughs) So, Jared. Yes. Let me tell you who I like in America for our next big fascist. Okay. I see one strain in particular that I think is really going to be productive in that regard, which is the hot woman fascist. And, of course, you've got one in South Dakota and Christy Tammy? Gnome. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I said South Dakota. But also, yeah, in Iowa <laughs> with What's-Her-Face. Oh, no, no, no. I thought you meant, like, Tammy Laren. She's from South Dakota. I'm pretty sure. Oh, but Christy Gnome is of the same ilk, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Tommy Laren. And then also here in Colorado, we've got Lauren Boebert now, uh, who's our dude, hot woman fascist. I don't think it could be a woman. Why is that? Just because of, like, the like the worldview of the people that they're trying to appeal to. I, I just don't know. But I you mean, know how, like, you, know how Bernie, you know how Bernie Sanders got like some ridiculous fucking like, what do they call that shit? Like uh concern troll when he like supposedly mm-hmm. told Elizabeth Warren, like you're going to probably be dealing with a little bit of uh fucking like uh horrible sexism. Yeah. Like, accurately pointed yeah, but, out that. But those contradictions don't mean anything to these people when it's the person on their side, though. And I think 
like look at how popular people like Christy Nomar in South Dakota and Bobert is in Colorado. I don't. I, I mean, they're already. I think Christy's goose is cooked now. Yeah. Yeah. She with COVID and stuff. No, she did. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but you know how we were talking about how the whole cannabis legalization thing wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, she just like did an executive order saying that that is unconstitutional and uh <laughs> basically uh good game fuck you my mom bought me this nintendo 64 so you can take your ass home and i'm gonna play fucking mario kart by myself and no one's smoking weed <laughs> yeah uh it's not happening well I hate to say i told you so but i fucking told you so Dude. right like <laughs> a fucking a toe to so oh man i know so many people too that were just like oh we're gonna start a cannabis farm we're gonna grow marijuana and we're gonna make a bunch of money and doesn't matter that every person i know is talking about starting a cam a cannabis farm um we're all gonna make a ton of money but also it's just not going to happen because this is south dakota right yeah well i mean i see what you're saying though with you know the the inherently like anti-feminine features of fascism right yeah like femininity is weakness well femininity maybe not weakness but like the only way to be strongly feminine is to pump out some kids for the war effort bobert's got a lot of kids yeah well she might be the one then because Christy I mean, Gnome, she was out there. Christy Gnome's kind of only got one like doofy son, I think. Oh yeah, well, I know it was like Bobert's first day, and she was out there saying the election was stolen like hours before the Capitol got stormed. So, I don't know. I who do I think? I think Bobert's an interesting one. Who do yeah. I think like could be the next fashion? What about leader? Dan Crenshaw? No, that guy's a fucking clown. Shapiro? No. Fuck no. Jewish, yeah. like, way too whiny without, like, the funniness. Let's mm-hmm. see. Who's, like, a, a loudmouth that uh, talks a lot? Oh, dude. I know who it's going to be. And it is a woman. But she's going to ride the coattails of her father's, like shafted legacy it's gonna be megan mccain dude oh yeah no i can see that for sure because she can kind of run on the military reputation of her father uh-huh 100 percent. Right? it's yeah. like all she talks about and the in the whole like lost greatness yeah. of that generation yeah of murdered children in vietnam if uh if we're gonna get like a fascist lady queen i think it's gonna be her all right, listen. God damn you, on, Ozzy. Keep an eye on those ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, no. Okay. Who else do I think it could be, though? Kevin Sorbo. Oh, wait. Hercules? Yes. Yeah, he's in all of those conservative Christian, like, God's Not Dead movies. Yeah. Right? So yeah. he's got, like... He's got like uh, the silent majority behind him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Nope. And he's and he's all right. He's got the Hercules. Thing. We're gonna have a unified ticket here. The Sorbo McCain. <laughs> That's gonna be our fascist. Uh, yeah. Utopia. 
God, I'm looking forward well, to it, man. Yeah, and you know, I think what we saw here was that it's not a clear repeat. I mean, obviously the Nazis weren't in power in 1923. Right. They weren't coming out of power. <laughs> Who do you think would win in a fight? 2021 Kevin Sorbo versus 1998 Lucy Lawless. <laughs> Lawless for Fuck sure. Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah. I think she wants to kick his ass right now. <laughs> she should, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey. Out. Cats digging in plants again. No, get out. Come on. Oh, Jesus. Get out. Come on. Come on. Jared's cat is just oh knocking things off of the shelf. Oh, Total on, neglect kitty. and lack of attention. Well, Jared was talking about Nazis for two hours. Oh, Has led his cat to, to do <laughs> Antifa praxis on his bookshelf. Trying to knock over all my fucking... All my funk records. Get out of here, kid. <laughs> this cat is a goddamn terrorist. Not the P funk. <laughs> Dude, I just found out that my parliament records are worth like fucking 60 bucks a piece. Nice. Dude, hey, I paid like. Hold on to those. Yeah. I got them all at the same fucking uh, garage sale. I got like. I do. I got like ten fucking Parliament records for like twenty dollars. <laughs> Sweet. But my cat fucking wants to destroy everything that I fucking own. <laughs> I got him a free cat tower today. That's like yeah, actually made out of wood and shit. Mm-hmm. And he loves it. He's just been like ripping it apart. But then he comes up here all. All amped up trying to knock yeah. over records and like climb up my drapes and shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Good old Cloud. Oh, he's such a good boy, but goddamn, he does some destructive shit sometimes. And he's like right on the cusp the... of one, I think. It's that age, I guess. All right. Well, I mean, cats, they're not supposed to be in a house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Want to be outside murdering mice and other critters. Oh, he loves being outside murdering stuff. So I wanted to, we talked a little bit about one of the things I wanted to conclude with, like is what's the next, you know, current of fascism in America, which, and it could still be Trump. Honestly, it could just still be manifest behind Trump. He is a populist. He used that same type of populist fervor to make this pooch happen. But I think we should also say, like, what's the can can a leftist take lessons from these these pooches we've looked at today? And I think one that I see right off the bat, and I want to I want to point this at Gun Lad in particular. If you're out there like bu- using your stimulus money to buy a gun because you think that's going to help you like challenge government authority, it's not. You can't. You can't do it this way. And if you have, if you're harboring dreams of like violent socialist revolution, I mean, you can destroy things, sure, but you're not going to build anything that's going to last. In the end, you're probably just going to destroy yourself. Yeah. And you're not helping anyone when you do that. You're helping your enemies. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I think we can look at, you know, 
the the socialists and the independent socialists and the communists and the coffeehouse anarchists as well and say that you know the organizational capacity came too late and there was a lack of well the lack of cooperation between the people on the left who should have been allied together but ended up splitting apart i'm and you know yeah i'm looking at the social democrats there you know, they should have, like, they should have been against the war from page one. And the fact that they were willing to accommodate German nationalism basically spelled the immediate end of their movement. So I think for us, you know, we have to, we have to really be like, you know, bird dogs about nationalism. We have to point at it and, you know, decry it wherever we see it, I think. And whenever we fall into like any of this, like, American exceptionalism shit, which is obviously bullshit now. Everyone knows that. But we were trained with it. Like, we're indoctrinated into it anyway. I mean, I really haven't even heard that lately. What? I think it's gone. American exceptionalism? I haven't really heard people talking about, like, how we're the best country in the world anymore. I don't. When's the last time you've heard that? I mean, yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long time since, since the, before the pandemic, Is Trump saying that anymore? I'm sure that people in his ilk are, but that doesn't mean that there can't still be a nationalist appeal for, yeah, making America great again. Oh no, there's definitely that. And honestly, Biden's campaign was partly a nationalist appeal to restore American greatness, which is obviously before Donald Trump got here, right? Yeah. Obama too, back in black. Right. And so I, I don't know. I, I just think we have to come back to class and we have to say that like what, if, if you're listening to someone like Biden or, um, or even a conservative reactionary who's saying that we need to destroy class divisions, whether it's to build an ethnic community or to build a functional state, that's bullshit. It's about class and you're never going to get rid of that conflict. Unless you actually like, you know, and honestly, you know, Marx called that real communism when you actually destroy class and everyone like lives as pure equals. But he was saying that's that's fantasy land. Like you're never going to get there. You're just it's always the goal of the project. But there's always class conflict. Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) all war is class war. It's just typically only one side knows who their enemy is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the side that wins like every single time, even in the French Revolution, even in the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you have that's so important, too, is being able to accurately identify your enemy. And for leftists, I want to just really make clear, you know, these people want to kill you and they would just straight up murder you if they had the chance. You know. The same beat your way to the top mentality is still present in these groups. Oh, yeah. And if we're not going to counter violence with harsher violence, then we have to look at the economic conditions that lead people to that conclusion, that lead to that class anxiety. We need to build a system that doesn't result in precarity and joblessness and lack of health insurance that lead people to these radical conclusions and conspiracy theories. Yeah. At the end of the day, if like, you know, 
everyone was just much less desperate, a lot of these problems just wouldn't ever crop up. Right, right. And and you got to look back at the ultra rich then, right? Who's who's been on the winning side out of all this shit? Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. It's always the ultra rich. Yeah. They always win. Like I said, uh, Mangala Machinery Company. Um, yeah, still exists. Bayer. Fuck. Volkswagen. Um, what was the 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 people who made all the the chemicals? Oh fuck. Dow or Bayer? Dow. Or, yeah. yeah. Dow. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Dow Industrial. Yeah. But yes. <clears throat> This shit's still around. You know, Hernan Cortez's great, great, great grandkid still has the, the title and the club membership. Yep. You know, it's it's the ultra wealthy. They're fucking all of us, and they're going to fuck us right into the grave. And so, you know, don't... This is the hard thing. It's like, don't hate the Trumpster. That's, that's the bullshit. It's like, the Trumpster hates you, but the fact is, is like they're not really the problem right no i mean they uh they're the people you should be somehow trying to build solidarity with because yes they're in the same boat as you they just yeah really have misidentified the problem yeah if i could do a critique of our own compostment of history I would say that sometimes we do couch things in right-wing language. And that's probably just because of our upbringing, to be honest, in the Midwest. But at the same time, I think I I do kind of try to do that because I understand that it will make things more understandable. What do you mean by right-wing language? Well, as I edit, sometimes I just notice that we like say things that is a little bit, you know, not PC maybe. Like that um, oh, who gives a Like fuck? in the last one, none of that like you shit said that, matters. I know, but like you said, like that Magellan got murdered, right? When he died in combat while he was trying to do colonialism. And it's like, yeah, that type of language is just, you know, is, is flippant. Murdered. But at the same time, he got killed. He got, right? Okay, killed, murdered, fucking put to uh, uh, death, yes. life force extinguished. Who gives a fuck? The PC police could have a field day with this podcast. Is what I'm, I'm sorry. Saying. But you know, that's like, not the point. You don't want to do that. You know, that. like all that fucking like vocabulary is important bullshit. It's bullshit. I really don't think so. It's action. I think like action and intent. You know? Yes. But who knows? <sighs> this has been a spicy podcast. I'm just some idiot from a red state that doesn't vote. <laughs> did you vote in the last one fuck no I why would i asked. yeah i live in south dakota I, mean, I don't blame you yeah who gives a shit i voted for my local stuff i yeah. knew gnome was gonna win in a landslide i knew trump was gonna win in a landslide so who gives a fuck yeah you know what am i gonna do vote well, for it, joe fucking biden who cares can, like it's yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not gonna. In South Dakota, definitely. Yeah, I'm not gonna vote for fucking Joe Biden if I because I literally don't have to because it doesn't matter. Well, Trump won again, by like I'm, thirty some points. Yeah, I, I'll say it again. I still, re- even with what happened this last week, I still do regret my vote for Biden because I understand this coup did not ever pose any kind of threat to me or my person 
or even the people and causes pre- that I it care didn't about. Pose a threat to anyone. I mean, except for like oh. one of the lady, that lady that died. But like, yeah. But but yeah. So what is so yeah, I don't want? care. Yeah, <laughs> and I still regret my vote for Biden because for me individually, my vote for Biden means that I'm not going to get what I want. So I do regret it. I still yeah. I've I regret it even. And in fact, I regret it even more given what just occurred last week. Yeah. See, and because I because we are so far. I know that I'm not going to get what I want, so my like resolution is to not want. Yeah. <laughs> and if South you think Dakota, this economic you know? crisis, yeah, and, and like if you think this economic crisis is going away, or that there won't be another worse one coming down the road five, ten years from now, that will lead to five or extreme ten fascist reaction if that dude <laughs> i think five is like the long on here there's yeah. no way this is going to take 10 years yeah hey it hasn't Welcome even we America. haven't even been dealing with covid for a year yet yep jared i i did a dangerous thing <laughs> what's uh, that up well, uh, yeah, I mean, a pooch occurred, and instead of feeling anxiety and terror about it, I opened a book and started reading. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the fucking, you know. That's what they don't want you to do, right? Hey, man. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the, like, consensus is on Dune anymore, but, like, yeah, dude, fear is the mind killer. Why do you yeah. think the market works so hard to generate anxiety? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To quote Lennon, you got to read, read, read. Yeah. Lennon in every school library. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that'll catch on. And listen to podcasts. This has been Compost Minute History. <laughs> <laughs> I've been James. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I am Jared. <laughs> Uh, hopefully you, our dear listener found this enlightening in some way. Maybe it alleviated some anxiety on your part. I hope so. Yeah. Um, fuck all that. You shit. gotta, you gotta plan and you gotta act. You gotta work with people. That's it. I mean, what else can I say? Get out there and do some shit, man. And send an email to compostbin of history at gmail.com. Let us know what you think Yeah, quit, about anything. Quit buying so many fucking guns. Yeah. You can only you don't, you don't need you can only guns. shoot one of them at a time. Yeah. What do you got? Three friends, you know, four guns. That's enough. Probably too many. Um, guns are cool. Save, they're fine. Yeah. They're dangerous. They're not the greatest fucking thing in the world. Save that money for a compost acreage of your own. Yeah. Or just fucking I don't know. Spend it on some other shit that you're interested in. You figured out. Spend it on drugs. Spend it Get on some drugs. Dr- I mean, no, don't spend it on drugs. <laughs> Get friends that have drugs. They'll share them with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just, uh, you know, get interested in something else. You like drawing. You like, uh, I don't know. You got to like something else. Just mm-hmm. uh, spend a little time and money on that something else. There you you already figured guns out. Yes. Yeah. Good good advice as ever <laughs> on compost benefit history. 
All right, I'm calling it. <laughs> All right, let's get the I'm fuck washing my hands of this podcast. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Thank you. 